recently had a conversation with an old friend. Uh, he called uh, from his new post in the Army. Uh, he has been all over the world. He, his wife, their five kids, and uh, it's amazing to see what God's doing in their lives. I mean, we talked about life. We've, been, um, we've known each other for about a quarter of a century, Andrew and I. And, you know, he's become one of my dear friends. And just hearing about his life, hearing of all the things that are going on. Um, and also thinking about uh, the fact that he has really come and, and encouraged me in so many ways. Um, he, along with a good number of people from my home state of Florida, were part of a team of people that financially made it possible for us to start the church. I don't know if you know anything about churches that start from scratch, but you know, money comes from someplace and it isn't the congregation because there isn't one. And so you end up with a group of people who underwrite that. And this family had literally given thousands of dollars over the course of the first five years of our church. And as I was telling him about this and telling him how God was blessing the church that he and his wife helped start here in Pasadena, um, he broke off into this sidebar telling me how grateful he was that I was his youth pastor. And he'd been talking about the difference that I made in their lives when they were young. And, and it dawned on me, this thing about getting older isn't a dream I'm having. I really am getting older. <laughs> I mean, I, I totally forgot for a few minutes there that I was his youth pastor, that I met him when he was in middle school, and that his wife came to Christ in our high school ministry. I, it's just sort of, I can't believe that it's been that long. But even more amazing than that is I can't believe God used me. And, and I know that you may think, well, you're being hard on yourself, but you don't know me that well. My wife does, so she gets this. Um, I think all of us are in a place where we, we would think to ourselves, how would God ever use me? I mean, when I think about what I didn't know two decades ago, and how silly and immature I was um, compared to even now. <laughs> when I look back 20 years from now, I hope I'm not saying this same thing. But I, I can just look back and go, you know, I'm amazed that the Lord worked through my life. Um, I, I think about this as I get older. Um, I realize more and more every day that God chooses to do things through us for his glory and for others' good in spite of us, in spite of our brokenness, in spite of the struggles of our lives. I know my own sin and my own heart. I know what it was 20 years ago. I know what it is today. And so whenever we are seeing God do something in our lives, uh, for me, it's just another testimony of God's undying kindness. Today, we get to see the same through Jonah, we get to see the exact same feeling expressed in Jonah's experience. The rebellious prophet, in spite of himself, used by God. I have two sermon themes today, and they are going to both serve as metaphors. Uh, the first is common grace, the second is common experience. Now, the first depicts the mission of the gospel. And the second is akin to our natural encounter with the gospel. You see, this whole 
section of Jonah uh, reflects Jonah's mission and his sacrifice. Um, and really, in many ways, it's a metaphor for the gospel's reach to all peoples and not just the Hebrews. We also see in God's care for those who don't know him, his protection of non-believers and provision for them into the same first theme of common grace. Now, secondly, buried within the portion of this narrative, we also see something really fun. And it's fun for those of us who study the scriptures for a living. It's neat when we see something that we hadn't planned on seeing. And that is a portion of this narrative would demonstrate to us the natural path that we all share as it comes to how we come to know God. Uh, We see this in verses 11 through 16, uh, the encounter that these sailors have with being saved from this storm is akin to how any person who would call themselves a follower of Jesus would come into contact with the gospel. We'll call this second theme our common experience. The first thing I want to do, though, is look at Jonah 1, 11 through 13, and show you how we see common grace in Jonah's encounter with the sailors. So again, I read from verses 11 through 13. It says, they said to him, these sailors, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. They picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. We see common grace in this experience because people who did not know God were actually kinder to Jonah than Jonah had ever been to them or to the Ninevites he was supposed to go reach. Common grace is distinguished from what theologians would call special grace. You see, everyone gets grace to some degree. All right, Jesus loves the cosmos. The most famous Christian verse, John 3.16, for God so loved the world. That world is the cosmos. He, he has a love for creation. He created people in his image, and they have tremendous value to him, independent of whether or not they rebel against him. It doesn't mean they won't at some point have to face the reality of their rebellion, but God still cares for them, loves them, and mercifully chooses to, depart, to impart grace to all. He, by his grace, imparts special grace on those who he favors because of their association with Christ. Any degree of benefit that we receive is a byproduct of his grace in some way. In fact, the theological paradigm from which our church works, which is known as Reformed theology, would say that even our capacity to trust Christ is a gift from him, that we don't naturally have the ability to respond to the gospel until he brings us to life. We would be the equivalent of a person who was dead and they couldn't hear, let alone react to a call And Jesus quickens us, awakens us, so that we can respond to the call. This is what we see in special grace. 
when we talk about common grace, it's whenever God determines in his providence to bless people and enable them to receive from him regardless of whether or not they believe or revere him. He gives life to all. He gives provision of talents, giftings to all. And regardless of his standing with him, he gives civil authorities to us by his grace. These civil authorities, whether we like them or not, are there to protect us and really sometimes motivate us to obey the law. And that itself is a gift of God's grace. In our text today, common grace can be seen in the merciful and godly way in which the sailors deal with Jonah. You see, even people who don't know God are given grace to act kindly and do lovingly toward others. Now, this doesn't mean that people can be saved by their works. The greatest of human beings in terms of what we perceive to be holiness or righteousness still only can do what God enables them to do in spite of their sinful nature. I found it interesting this past week that the movie star Scarlett Johansson very accurately said that, in, that marriage is not natural. And, and it, the reason she could feel that way, she doesn't realize, is that sin in us has made us amazingly selfish. So by nature, we are selfish. And so, yeah, it's going to run against your nature to spend your whole life putting someone else in your house first. So I concur with part of Scarlett's analysis of marriage. It is unnatural in a sinful world because we're broken. But God created it to be as natural as breathing, that two people would live together and reflect his love and kindness to each other. We cannot be saved by our good works because we are selfish. And we are always going to default to our own needs first. And so in spite of the fact that we are given God's grace commonly, we are all told that we are called to follow Christ, to emanate Christ. See, the, the, the sailors were actually kinder, <laughs> kinder to Jonah than he could have been to anyone at that stage of his life. But Jonah actually knew the Lord. Jesus says this in Matthew 5, You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. We saw that this week, did we here in California? Lived out, finally, the rain falling on the just and the unjust. You may say, my neighbor is a scoundrel, but God did not put a tent over your neighbor's yard to prevent the rain from falling on his lawn. Uh, everybody gets rain. God graciously provides so much. And Jesus would say to us that this is really why we should love even our enemies. They were created in the image of God. God loved us when the scriptures say we were his enemies. So we reflect God to people when we love them in spite of the fact that we think they aren't very good people. See, as we've said in the past weeks, we see God's grace demonstrated in God's pursuit of Jonah, 
The fact that you and I from time to time would rebel against the Lord means that we're going to see his grace in his pursuit of us. There is a tangential benefit or a common grace benefit that comes to people who don't know Jesus, and you see it in this experience that Jonah's having with these sailors too. God used the rebellion of the prophet to reach out to this group of people who had a very syncretistic view of religion. What I mean is, like kind of a postmodern Western 21st century culture, these were folks that weren't really sure what they believed, so they were trying to figure something out, and so they were trying to meld everything together to sync them up into one But as we studied last week, you know, when the crud hits the fan, you kind of lose your pride and you're just like, okay, whoever the real God is, come forward and answer quickly, please. You know, you kind of sort of lose whatever sort of feelings of, wow, am I not intellectually above the rest because I can see the whole elephant and I know that there's more than one way to God. You know, when the things are, when the chips are down and you need movement, you lose any sense of pretension that you should be able to define God as you see fit, and you don't care. Your humility goes, Jesus, whoever, help. You just want help. You just need God to move. So into this context comes the rebellious prophet, who, in spite of himself, God pushes him in front of these people who are going, we're in trouble. What are we going to do? How are we going to do this? And we see God's grace and his use of Jonah. I'm amazed. Uh, 2 Corinthians 4, 7 says, We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Jars of clay. I, I, <laughs> I like saying he uses cracked pots, you know, because that I think is the truth. Uh, we're crackpots, you know, we're, we're people that it's, it's remarkable that all of it doesn't leak out of us before we can actually get some into the hands of people who are dying of thirst. He works, and it's ironic to me that in, invo- in avoiding his initial ministry mandate, Jonah ended up doing ministry to the Gentiles anyway. You can't run from the Lord, friends, so you might as well just save yourself and save your strength and quit. Now, through Jonah, we get to see the grace of God in both its mission and its missionary. You know, I've been told over the last couple of decades, and in particular the last decade of my 40s when I was out here in California, I'd get Facebook notes or emails from young people that were in my youth ministry and They will say thank you. Oftentimes somebody who is either present in our church or who has walked a few miles with me will make a statement that sort of kind of, you know, feels like a compliment, but it sort of doesn't necessarily come out that way. They'll say something akin to, you know, Chuck, I've learned more about the grace of God watching your life in ministry than any person I've ever known. And... If you think about that for a minute, it's true. You know, I'm sort of amazed that he uses me too, and if I can serve that function in your life, if that will uh, propel you to think, well, you know, if I can go to the mission field, if God can use Chuck, I mean, Lord, he can use anybody. Good, we're halfway home. You know, this is kind of sort of what the mission really is for a guy like me. My dad used to say it like this. Um, Backhanded compliments sound like, you know, you don't sweat much for a fat person. So... (laughs) 
<laughs> Thank you, I think. The truth be told is, is that in Jonah's case, in our case, it should always be a reaffirmation of that we are miraculously part of God's plan. You might say, I'm too sinful to be used by God. There's no such thing. You might say, gosh, you know, I can't do ministry because uh, I don't feel like I'm in a place where I'm confident enough in my own righteousness. That would be the last thing we would want from one of our ministers. And if you're going to be honest, that day will never come. No minister in his right or her right mind would ever say, you know, I, um, I feel like God's pretty lucky to have me. You know, uh, he's, you know, when I think about all things considered, you know, I'm, I'm glad I'm on his team. He, he really needed me. No one ever thinks that or feels that. Jonah especially. This is what common grace should cause us. It should cause us to share a common humility. The recognition that God is the one who is the giver of all gifts, that every good and perfect gift comes from the Father. That should cause us to be humble. It should cause us to share a common brokenness. It should soften our tone. It should make us more patient with each other. And it certainly should keep us from ever becoming self-righteous about what we believe or how we live out our faith compared to others. And as seen in Jonah 1, verses 11 through 16, today's passage, we also share a common experiencing in encountering God through Jesus. So common grace is seen in this text, but we also have a shared experience when it comes to our natural interaction with the reality of the gospel. Let me show you what I mean. We'll start with verse 11. This is common experience number one. And it is the mutual call for solutions. When you come to the conclusion that you are in danger, from a spiritual standpoint, when you come to the conclusion that you deservedly should and could be judged for your sinfulness, you are then going to embark upon a questioning of what to do next. In Jonah's case, they asked him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us for the sea grew more and more tempestuous? See, once you realize you're unholy and, danger, and in danger of being judged guilty for your sins, the logical first step is to begin to evaluate your options. Whether the experience is akin to when the rich young ruler came to Jesus or the Pentecostal audience responded to Peter's message or whether the jailer in the book of Acts in Philippi, the answers were all the same. The questions were, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Brothers, what shall I do? Sirs, what must I do to be saved? This is a, a common theme. This is a common experience that we all share. Once you come to the conviction, once you humbly recognize, I, I can't do anything to rescue myself like these sailors on Jonah's boat or Jonah on the sailor's boat, I guess it'd be more appropriate to say. They're saying, uh, this storm is gonna kill us. What do we do? See, if we stare down 
what is in our hearts and minds, this is just. God would be completely justified in judging me. I am guilty of my sins. You have to ask, what's the solution? Common experience, too, is his response to that, which is the author of a substitute. You see in verse 12, he said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea, the sea will quiet down for you. You see, through Christ's sacrifice on the cross, we are given a solution that necessitates God's merciful action and our humble reliance. In Jonah's case, what he said to them was, the only way for you to live is if I die. And this points us forward to Jesus. What Jesus is saying to us in, in our query, oh, what to do? He's saying, I've got an idea. I've got a plan. I'm going to be the substitute. And if you'll depend on me, then you will be saved from the storm that's headed your way. Jesus said this in Matthew 16, 21, or it says this in Matthew 16, 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Jesus' death was no surprise to him. He knew from all eternity this was the plan. He was going to be the substitutionary atonement for our sins. This was not new. This is not a theology that was developed by Protestants in the 16th century. This was Jesus' intent from the beginning. I'm going to come to earth. I'm going to show everybody what I really look like. I'm going to be the incarnation, the visible picture of the invisible God, you are going to see me an exact representation of the Father's being in the flesh. I'm going to let my friends record it by the power of the Holy Spirit so for generations they'll be able to read about it, but then I'm going to die for their sins. This was not a surprise. Jesus said to his disciples, it was actually in their, it was in their best interest that he goes away. He said when talking to them the night before he was killed, he said, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For I, if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So we all have this experience where we are offered the gospel. The gospel is, is presented to all. The common experience, number three, is what our natural inclination is to do apart from his special grace imparted to us. Our natural inclination is going to be a rejection of God's way and a dependence on self. You see this in verse 13. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Jonah said, I got an idea. You're going to throw me overboard. And they said, nah, we got a better solution. We're going to go ahead and do the work ourselves. Now, the sailors may have thought their rejection of the divine solution was the humane thing to do, so they tried another solution, one they thought better. For any number of reasons, when human beings pass on God's solution, it usually involves resisting the need to humble ourselves and come to him on his term. I can look different from place to place. In some so-called Christian theological circles, 
the, the offense of Jesus being the substitutionary atonement for our sins has forced some to create another sort of idea about what the cross was really all about, that it wasn't about God uh, pacifying his wrath or satisfying his just punishment of us by putting it on his son. They say that makes God look like an abuser of children. Well, here's the difference. Jesus signed up for this. God didn't make him do it. Jesus is the one who said, I will go. I will save them. I willingly will go to earth and be incarnated as a man and die for the sins. You don't see Jesus throughout the course of his life saying, you know, I really can't stand that the Father made me do this. Jesus willingly did this. Jonah, the same. The, the sailors weren't sick. They didn't go, all right, we got to figure something out here. Let's throw this guy overboard. Jonah's the one who brought that up. You want to be saved, what you're going to need to do is toss me overboard. I'm the means by which this whole thing's going to go away. They're the ones that said, well, we don't think that's such a, a good idea. Our set of moral standards have forced us to reevaluate God's divine plan. So our dependence on self makes us think that we can create a means of calming the seas of judgment that are most certainly deservedly coming our way. But the scriptures make it very clear that's not possible. Romans chapter 3 verse 20 says, For by the works of the law no human being will be justified in this sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Translated another way, only through grace can you be saved because if you try to do it, if you try to obey the law and make that the means of your salvation, that only points out just how bad you are because you continue to fail at it. There's no peace in that. In Titus 3, 4, and 5, it says, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. We can't depend on ourselves. We're not reliable enough. There's no peace in that. There's, we don't have the capacity to calm the, the storms of holy justice. We don't have that in us. Only in Christ can we find a solution. And this is what leads us to our common experience number four, which is the cry, the ultimate cry for salvation. By grace, you come to the end of yourself. In the text, verse 14, it says, they, Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. It's important to know that in the original language, this is the first time they use the Hebrew word Yahweh for Lord. Up until this point, they're using small g God. They're using all kinds of references for Lord. And now they finally, after exhausting all of their alternatives, and boy, this sounds just like me, turn to God and go, oh, God of all creation, Yahweh, come save us, please. The cry for salvation is our common experience and the good news is, is that God says, if by his grace you would come. He loved the cosmos. Whoever would believe, he would give eternal life. So if he's given you grace to respond, you recognize your need for salvation, the, the word says that whosoever believes, 
he will save. See, he, he loves you. He's wanting to, to bring you to himself and the humility that that requires is an act of grace, a willingness to say, okay, my way doesn't work, then I'm willing to admit that this itself is an experience of grace. Romans 10, verses 12 through 13 says, there's no distinction between Jew and Greek for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The, author, the, the offer of salvation goes to all. His special grace enables some mercifully to be awakened to be able to respond in the first place. And if you have the ability to believe and call out on the name of the Lord, he says he will save you. And then something terrific happens. Our common experience five is the quieting of our souls. In verse 15, it says, they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea and the sea ceased from its raging. And this will really make me out to be the shallow movie-watching guy that I am, but I, I couldn't help but thinking about this scene in Forrest Gump where uh, Lieutenant Dan is, like, sitting on top of the mast in the middle of this hurricane and yelling at God, and then the next scene, he, he plops himself over the side of the boat after thanking Forrest for saving his life, and he's swimming, and the sea is dead, quiet. See, this is the peace that God offers to someone who says, you know what, I'm going to depend on what Christ has done for me. I'm going to effectively throw it all onto Jesus. Jesus is going to be the means. When, when Jesus is your Savior, the raging of you could be judged for your sin, you should be afraid of death, that's gone. Absolutely wiped out of your existence, flat smooth water, pristine, because Jesus has satisfied the wrath of God. Once we genuinely experience the peace of Christ, it calms our fears of what we think is legitimate judgment headed our way. The legitimate storm that is headed for every human being should frighten us and we get to experience a rest that only Jesus could provide, a quieting of our souls, a ceasing to our striving that we would do something. I have to do something in order to get God's wrath to be pacified. In Christ, we now can hear him just simply quiet those storms. In the experience that the disciples had in Luke 8 with Jesus in a boat amidst the storm, they woke Jesus in the middle of that one and said, Master, Master, we're perishing. And it says, Jesus awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. Is that what your soul's longing for? The ability to just chill, you know, to just have rest before God. It was what was promised by Jesus, and yet it's so infrequently experienced in churches. Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty eight and 29, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. This has not been the experience of many Christians. And sometimes, it's because they do not understand in this progression that 
at a certain point, they've got to give up their methodology to calming the storm and depend on God's substitutionary plan, crying out for salvation and saying, I'm going to find it in no other than in Christ, that in Christ is when we can find a rest, something that would make us say, God is in charge, and I am at rest with him. I am at peace. Which, of course, then produces naturally the final common experience, number six, which is the response of sacrifice. We've gone from the call for solutions to the offer of a substitute to the dependence on self and then a cry for salvation and a quieting of the soul to the response of sacrifice. And it says in verse 16 that the men feared the Lord exceedingly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And this is where you absolutely have to see that salvation preceded all of this sacrifice. This is the gospel. They did not make vows and sacrifices to make the storm go away. Jonah, the substitute, made the storm go away. Once the storm calmed the seas, once they were at rest, once they were at peace, they said, we're going to make sacrifices and vows. This is the gospel. And if you're making vows on the front side, that's just one more way of you creating your own solution. I'm going to make a vow. I'm not going to do this anymore. I promise, I promise, and now I can feel good about who I am with you. And God's saying, that's not the solution. The solution is throw Jonah over the side. Throw Jesus over the side. Jesus' death is the solution. That's how you're going to get peace. And once you experience that rest, once it's genuinely in your heart of hearts and you know I'm going to heaven not because I'm such a good guy because I'm not, not because I'm such a holy woman because I'm not, I'm going to heaven. I'm at rest with the Father because of what Jesus has done for me. That is what produces this That is the fuel for this engine where we say, we're going to renew culture and we're going to make a difference in our world and we're going to right wrongs and we're going to seek justice. It all has to be fueled, not by our own sense of trying to get God to be happy with us, but instead out of our experience of being rescued, being put at peace with the Father. The converted soul offers sacrifice and thanks for salvation. Now, whether or not these particular sailors on this ship were converted or not are matters for scholars to debate. What is not up for discussion is that most certainly when someone genuinely encounters God and is saved from death, they revere God and offer themselves as a living sacrifice. Not out of fear, not out of terror, but because they love God. See, this is is a depiction of a relationship Somebody loved you so tenderly that they were willing to sacrifice for you. They cared for you. Now, in response to that kind of tenderness, you're saying, I want to love you. 1 John 4, 18 and 19 says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If you're still afraid of God then you have to ask for God's grace to help you understand that you don't need to be. You don't need to be afraid anymore. If you're a Christian, if you've called on the name of the Lord, you are saved. You are his child. 
the storm is calmed. That's not like going to happen someday in the future. In terms of judgment, you have been set free. You no longer will be punished for your sins. If that can become real to us, if that, the, the reality of the gospel can really grip us, that's when we say, I'm going to love God more. All throughout this narrative, we've had the privilege of seeing Jesus' plan for our salvation. And in particular, you see this in how Jonah was willing to give his life. Tim Keller says, when he was on the cross, he was thrown willingly like Jonah, into the ultimate storm, under the ultimate waves, the waves of sin and death. Jesus was thrown into the only storm that can actually sink us, the storm of eternal justice, of what we owe for our wrongdoing. That storm wasn't calmed, not until it swept him away. This is the beauty of the gospel. We love because he first loved us. My friends Andrew and Nicole have been extraordinarily generous to our church, not because I'm a good guy. They know me, I mean, like really well, like quarter of a century well, like I worked for his dad for a decade well. Like they know the parts of Uncle Chuck that nobody should have to know. They didn't support our church because I'm such a great and holy guy. They love me because they love Christ. That's what made them say, you know, there's a group of people out in California that need to hear about the grace and love of Christ, the grace that was willing to save that guy, Chuck. This needs to happen. We love Jesus and his gospel so much. We'll do this. It was in response to God worked in their hearts. And this is where God is calling you and I back to a revival of our souls that we would love him and others well for the glory of Christ. Let us pray. Father, today your gospel makes sense to us, but there are days where we seem lost. We seem incapable of appropriating the the calm. We see our sin and it seems greater than your grace. And so today, Father, I pray for women and men here at our church, to be at rest, the rest, Jesus, that you purchased, the rest that if they are your child by faith, you have already accomplished. Their seas are not raging, and yet they're afraid, and they don't need to be. I pray today you'd impart a special sense of how at rest they are with you. Father, we know that unless we understand this, we're never going to be people who sacrifice and vow to you because we love you. It's always going to be trying to get something from you or out of some twisted sense of doing it so that you won't be mad. We need to see that the storms have been calmed. So I I pray for a special grace today for your people. That it wouldn't be just an intellectual exercise for us to acknowledge the gospel, but it would transform our lives. We pray in Jesus' name.